We are in Exodus chapter 8 this morning, and I'm going to read the chapter in its entirety. And we'll ask for the Lord's help. Exodus 8, starting verse 1, I'm going to continue reading the word, the Lord, when it is in all caps, as Yahweh. Then Yahweh said to Moses, go into Pharaoh and say to him, thus says Yahweh, let my people go that they may serve me. But if you refuse to let them go, behold, I will plague all your country with frogs. The Nile shall swarm with frogs that shall come up into your house and into your bedroom and on your bed and into the houses of your servants and your people and into your ovens and your kneading bowls. The frogs shall come up on you and on all your and on your people and on all your servants. And Yahweh said to Moses, say to Aaron, stretch out your hand with your staff over the rivers over the canals and over the pools and make frogs come up on the land of Egypt. So Aaron stretched out his hand over the waters of Egypt and the frogs came up and covered the land of Egypt by the magicians. Uh, but the magicians did the same by their secret arts and made frogs come up on the on land of Egypt. Then Pharaoh called Moses and Aaron and said, plead with Yahweh to take away the frogs from me and from my people. And I will let the people go sacrifice to Yahweh. Moses said to Pharaoh, be pleased to command me when I am to plead for you and for your servants and for your people, that the frogs be cut off from you and your houses and be left only in the Nile. And he said, tomorrow. And Moses said, be it as you say, so that you may know that there is no one like Yahweh our God. The frogs shall go away from you and your houses and your servants and your people. They shall be left only in the Nile. So Moses and Aaron went out from Pharaoh. Moses cried to Yahweh about the frogs as he had agreed with Pharaoh. And Yahweh did according to the word of Moses. The frogs died out in the houses, the courtyards, and the fields. And they gathered them together in heaps, and the land stank. But when Pharaoh saw that there was a respite, he hardened his heart and would not listen to them, as Yahweh had said. Then Yahweh said to Moses, say to Aaron, stretch out your staff and strike the dust of the earth so that it may become gnats in all the land of Egypt. And they did so. Aaron stretched out his hand with his staff and struck the dust of the earth. And there were gnats on man and beast. All the dust of the earth became gnats in all the land of Egypt. The magicians tried by their secret arts to produce gnats, but they could not. So there were gnats on man and beast. Then the magician said to Pharaoh, this is the finger of God. But Pharaoh's heart was hardened and he would not listen to them as Yahweh had said. Then Yahweh said to Moses, rise up early in the morning and present yourself to Pharaoh as he goes out to the water and say to him, thus says Yahweh, let my people go that they may serve me. Or else, if you will not let my people go, behold, I will send swarms of flies on you and your servants and your people and into your houses, and the houses of the Egyptians shall be filled with swarms of flies and also the ground on which they stand. But on that day, I will set apart the land of Goshen where my people dwell, so that no swarms of flies shall be there that you may know that I am Yahweh in the midst of the earth. 
Thus, I will put a division between my people and your people. Tomorrow, this sign, this sign shall happen. And Yahweh did so. There came great swarms of flies into the house of Pharaoh and into his house, servants' houses. Throughout all the land of Egypt, the land was ruined by the swarms of flies. Then Pharaoh called Moses and Aaron and said, Go, sacrifice to your God within the land. But Moses said, It would not be right to do so, for the offerings we shall sacrifice to Yahweh our God are an abomination to the Egyptians. If we sacrifice offerings abominable to the Egyptians before their eyes, will they not stone us? We must go three days' journey into the wilderness and sacrifice to Yahweh our God as he tells us. So Pharaoh said, I will let you go to sacrifice to Yahweh your God in the wilderness, only you must not go very far away. Plead for me. Then Moses said, Behold, I am going out from you, and I will plead with Yahweh that the swarms of flies may depart from Pharaoh, from his servants, and from his people tomorrow. Only let not Pharaoh cheat again by not letting the people go sacrifice to Yahweh. So Moses went out from Pharaoh and prayed to Yahweh. And Yahweh did as Moses asked and removed the swarms of flies from Pharaoh, from his servants, and from his people. Not one remained. But Pharaoh hardened his heart this time also and did not let the people go. Gracious Heavenly Father, we ask as we read your word, you would give your blessing with it in its preaching and giving the sense. Open up the ears of your people to understand what you would have for them this morning. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Well, as my kids were asking on the way to church, our two-minute drive to church, what we were going to learn about today, I said, frogs, gnats, and flies. <laughs> and they said, oh, we know about them. Egyptians hate them. <laughs> yeah, Egyptians will come to hate frogs and gnats and flies. We are finding ourselves in Exodus 8. We are in this section where Yahweh has clearly said he is making himself known to Israel in mercy that he would redeem them. And he's making himself known to Egypt in judgment. And, and in both, for both people, in judgment or in salvation, Yahweh has decided they will all know me. They will all know me. And there's no this side of God, that side of God, a little bit of mercy to offset some little bit of justice. All of the glory of God is being revealed in these judgments, in these plagues. So last time we talked about, as these commenced, that God was bringing really a divine subpoena upon Israel, upon Egypt. And he's making Moses stand before Pharaoh as God, right? I have set you before Pharaoh as God. And as a judicial emissary of Yahweh, Moses has the authority and the power to do all these plagues, to do all these signs and wonders. And Aaron's staff was the first sign. It gobbled up and swallowed up the staffs of the 
uh, magicians. Then the first plague we saw, which is the second sign, the water turns, the water of the Nile turns the blood. And then in chapter eight, we have the third, fourth, and fifth signs, or the second, third, and fourth plagues with frogs, gnats, and flies. What do we learn? What do we learn from these judgments? Can we learn from God's judgments? That God has a hidden dark side? Is our view of God such that we steer clear from passages of judgment? Possibly afraid of what we might find? God's judgments in Egypt and throughout redemptive history, uh, they definitely reveal his justice. But judgment and salvation are really two sides of the same coin. For when God reveals justice, he also reveals mercy. We could summarize chapter 8 with God is acting in judgment and he's revealing his goodness and his saving power. For whatever he's bringing people out of, he has to put down the powers that are oppressing them. And this is all seen throughout redemptive history. You see this at the very beginning of the story. Adam and Eve fall, and God pronounces a judgment and a promise of mercy. Snake, you're going to have your head crushed by the seed of a woman. Eve, the seed of your seed, will have his, bruised, his heel bruised in crushing the serpent. There's judgment, there's salvation. You go all throughout Israel's history, go all the way to the book of Revelation, and you have the same thing. There is, there's judgment and there's mercy. Judgment and mercy, judgment and mercy. They, they're interrelated. So everywhere we see God's justice, we actually see mercy. There are difficult passages in the Bible. Uh, you take the conquest of Canaanites or really all the nations in there. God is using Israel as a, really as a, as a sword, as a sign of judgment. But he's also doing that to bring Israel into the land in which God has apportioned to them. Judgment, mercy. I think as we think about this idea of God and his attributes, we inevitably hear whether in our own hearts or from others, this desire to have a God of love. And God is full of love. But we all know what that typically means, a God of only love. But does that God exist in the Bible? That God doesn't exist in the Bible. If that God existed in the Bible, there would be no redemption. There has to be justice meted out in order to save. We find this no clearer than in the cross of Christ, where Jesus bore our judgment and we received mercy. There are two parties there. The, the innocent Jesus Christ the, the guilty sinner. But in the gospel, 
which these signs and wonders in Egypt are simply a picture of. But in the gospel, we see judgment must happen in order for salvation to happen. There's no such thing as a God of only love. He's a God of full to the brim love. But in order to save, in order to reconcile, judgment has to be meted out. So my goal today is simply to kind of walk through this passage and show you how God's goodness and his saving power is seen through these plagues, seen through these judgments. First off, point one, frogs and mercy. Frogs and instant mercy. Frogs, slimy little critters. So in this first plague, God causes frogs to leap out of the water of the Nile and swarm with Egypt, swarm upon Egypt. No doubt some natural cause and effect here. The Nile has just been turned to blood and any amphibious creatures would normally say, I, I'm not going to stay in the blood. I'm going to go up on land. And while there is that natural cause and effect, we see, it's, we see it's clearly more than just natural cause and effect when the Lord causes all these frogs to go everywhere in Egypt. And I hope you caught that with the frogs, the gnats, and the flies, they all go everywhere. There's not a place where they are not. They are everywhere. It says in verse 3, redundancy matters here. The Nile is going to swarm with frogs that will come up into your house. I, I don't care whether you're like, like a macho hunter dude or a petite housewife with fears of frogs. Nobody wants buckets of frogs in their house. They're going to come up into your house they're going to come into your bedroom. Imagine that. Under your sheets, frogs, oozy, slimy. They're, all, they're going to be on your bed. They're going to be in the houses of your servants and people. And they're even going to be in your ovens and kneading bowls. They're everywhere. This is Moses' way, God's way of saying everywhere. They're going to be, you're not going to be, a, you're not going to be able to not step on them, see them, accidentally cook them. They're going to be everywhere. Hope you like frog legs. They're going to be everywhere. Absolute infestation. So it is a little bit of a natural thing. The frogs would come naturally out of the bloody Nile. But here we see, obviously, the hand of the Lord, and he brings them all upon the land of Egypt. And the magicians, who have not learned from their previous folly, do the same by their secret arts, who if they had any ounce of intellect, they would make the frogs go away. Instead, they're bringing judgment on themselves, which I think is a no small way of God's justice on them. That, that in their folly and in their pride... They'd say, oh, we can do that. We're going to afflict ourselves too. <laughs> so they don't make them go away. They bring the frogs up on land. However, Yahweh has Pharaoh's attention. Pharaoh, who at one time said, Yahweh? I don't know Yahweh. 
Yahweh has attention now. And Pharaoh calls to Moses and Aaron, and he says, plead with Yahweh, verse 8, to take away the frogs from me and from my people. You notice there, Pharaoh is lumped in there with all the other frog hosts. He's no different. (laughs) Servants, kings, under God's judgment, it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter whether you're rich, poor, whether whether you're from dreaded California (laughs) or the promised land of Wyoming. (laughs) Either way, God's judgment falls fairly on all. And Pharaoh is not a distinguished incarnate God. He is the same as anybody else under God's, God's judgment. So he, he calls and says, Pharaoh, please get these frogs out of here. Get these, oh, frogs are so yucky. Like, I, I like, I love animals. I love animals. Frogs are just so slimy. You know, they ooze off their back and yucky stuff. Pharaoh, Pharaoh, even though he has a, a pride in him, he's, he says, this is enough. This is enough. The, the frog itself was probably an attack on frog god. Now, typically when we think of idols, we might think of beasts that are intimidating and fierce and big. But the Egyptians worshipped the frogs. Heket was the name of one of Egypt's frogs. And in Egyptian mythology, there was a group of eight gods, and they consisted of four pairs of very early primeval gods, and they, con- they represented night, obscurity, eternity, and secrecy. So they have these pantheon of gods, these eight gods, and in these eight gods, there are pairs of each representing night, obscurity, eternity, and secrecy, and their corresponding goddesses. Half of these gods were depicted with the heads of snakes. The other half, the heads of frogs. Yahweh is letting, he's putting everybody on notice. Your frogs are not gods. Your frogs They're my frogs. And I will tell them where to go and where not to go. I will even make them abnormally migrate from the river into all your homes and houses and kneading bowls and ovens. And when Pharaoh gets this, he says to God's appointed mediator, plead for me. Intercede for me. He, he's waving a white flag. He's, he's done. And Moses, Moses might think, wow, okay, we're, we're good. The whole judgment scene, we're done. You know, Pharaoh, his hard heart is no longer. He's showing signs of contrition. Moses says, when do you want me to plead for you and your servants and your people that the frogs might be cut off? And he says, Tomorrow. Why he says, not today, I don't know. He says, tomorrow, Moses says, okay, be it as you say. And what happens? The second Moses intercedes for Pharaoh, all the frogs drop dead. 
right where they are. They drop dead in the houses, the courtyards, and the fields, verse 13. They don't, they don't go as they would normally go, like a wounded animal off to go die somewhere. They just drop dead immediately, right then and there. And they don't have bulldozers, so they got to pile up by hand all these dead amphibians and the land stank. That, that isn't, has got to be an understatement. Oh, gosh. But I, but I want you to see here, God knows Pharaoh's going to harden his heart. Nevertheless, he gives Pharaoh instant mercy. When Pharaoh, God's enemy, goes through God's appointed mediator, Pharaoh's an enemy of God. He hates God. And even though Yahweh knows he will harden his heart, he gives him instant mercy. Instant mercy. If Pharaoh received instant mercy from going through Moses, God's appointed mediator, the Christian, anybody who goes through Christ, God's appointed mediator will no doubt receive instant mercy. Instant mercy. Instant, immediate. The minute someone says to Jesus, forgive me, or as the thief on the cross said, and he confessed to Jesus, Jesus immediately said, today you will be with me in paradise. He was just hurling insults at him two seconds ago. But the minute someone turns to God through God's appointed mediator, that soul will receive instant mercy. Instant. I used to think this was a trick by preachers when I was a, a, just a pagan high schooler, junior higher. Altar calls are being given, and, and they talk about how God will immediately take you in if you confess and believe. And they were right. Instant mercy. Instantaneous divine reconciliation. In Luke, he has a wonderful story. It's actually kind of a double story between a man who has a 12-year-old daughter and a woman who has a hemorrhage for 12 years. She came up and touched the fringe of his garment and immediately her discharge of blood was cleansed. Immediate. Immediate. Glory is a prayer away. Glory is a prayer away. For those who are not in the Lord, all they have to say with sincerity is, Lord, be merciful to me, a sinner. And then instantaneously, you can have a 
brother who is the king of the universe and of all things and a father in heaven who loves you and adores you. Instantaneously, immediately, no way, no layaway, no nothing. Just immediate mercy. That's what judgment tells us. Judgment tells us that those who turn from judgment will receive immediate grace. We also see through judgment that God is Lord over all. Look here at this third plague, the gnats. These gnats, there's some ambiguity in terms of the identity of the gnats and the flies. Uh, the gnats were, were probably, first off, not worshipped. I have a, a fairly lame theory, but if you look through the Exodus account, uh, the judgment account, you will see that, to my understanding, the magicians only try to mimic and successfully do so when they are, when Yahweh is attacking their deity. And starting with the gnats, the magicians try, they don't, and from then on, they don't ever try again. And Yahweh it seems like isn't necessarily attacking the deity because he's already hit them out of the park. He swallowed the serpent, he turned the Nile, their life-giving water, creation to blood, and now the frogs are all dead. So these gnats, these little buggers are coming around and the text says, Yahweh, Moses tells Aaron, strike the dust of the earth so that it may become gnats, similar to the Nile the water turned into blood. It wasn't a, there wasn't a, a wildebeest feast upstream and all the blood of the wildebeest came out and that was very bloody water. No, it was blood. Here, we're told the dust of the earth became gnats. It might be some kind of supernatural multiplication. It could be direct creation. But either way, the dust of the earth, of which there is infinite amount almost, they become gnats. However, so the gnats are not God. They are barely visible. They would bite the host and creep into the eye and nose of the person. And they were everywhere. Man and beast. In homes. Everywhere. Anybody who's been camping knows these stories. Many, many times have camping trips been canceled because of the bugs. Mosquito nets don't do anything sometimes. Many times, bugs are just too overwhelming. And these gnats were absolutely everywhere. It says, all the dust of the earth became gnats in all the land of Egypt. Everywhere. Ugh. Yuck. And it says in verse 18, the magicians tried by their secret arts to produce gnats, but they could not. So there were gnats on man and beast. We can only surmise the reason why the magicians were unable to produce gnats is because God had simply said, no more. In my humble opinion, 
the ability that the magicians have to turn staff into snake, water, Nile water into blood, and frogs to come up on land is through the devilish power with which they were empowered with. It wasn't a slight hand. It wasn't a trick. They actually were given, in my opinion, powers from the enemy himself. But they could not hear, and we, don't, we are not given a reason. We're not given a reason. All we know is that God said no more. God had enough of it. Enough counterfeit. So what happens when the magicians say, we can't do it? This is the finger of God. Now, this, this is the finger of God doesn't mean this is just like a finger of God's powerful hand. It's just a fraction of his hand. No, they're admitting this plague is of divine origin. It is not a seasonal migration of gnats. It is of divine origin. They say, we're out of our league. Pharaoh has humbled himself, kind of, although he then hardened his heart. And now the magicians are saying, we're out of our debt. There, there's actually a movement going on from chapter 8 on where there's a, there's a movement of what is happening in Egypt. Not with Israel, with Egypt. And Pharaoh, magicians, and others who are starting to fear Yahweh more and more and more. And it starts here, the, pharaoh, the magicians say, this is the finger of God. This is not an unfamiliar term. You guys know where this term is repeated. In the ministry of Jesus, in Luke 11, we see that there is something bigger going on with Egypt and God. It's not just Egypt and God. It's God and the adversary. And in Luke 11, we see the same thing. It's not about the demons. And it's not about the pharisaical skeptics. It's about Jesus coming in and confronting and defeating the powers of darkness. In that chapter of chapter 11, some are asserting that Jesus' power over the demons comes from Beelzebul, the prince of demons. And Jesus would utterly destroy the absurdity of that claim. If demons belong to Beelzebul or Satan's kingdom and Jesus is casting them out in Beelzebul's power, then Satan is in effect working for, Jesus is in effect working for Satan as Satan's dividing his own house. If, however, that's not the case, and obviously it's not because Jesus says so, J Jesus is casting them out by the finger of God so he tells them, I'm not doing this under Satan's power. I'm doing this on my own power. I'm doing this by the finger of God. So he, he quotes this here. The Lord of the flies or the Lord of the gnats. And that is another picture of what is going on in salvation. You have the backdrop of judgment. And in that, you also have salvation and mercy being displayed. What happens in Jesus's ministry? He is defeating the powers of the enemy. There is a cosmic battle between Yahweh and Satan. 
and people, sinners, are in the middle. But we're not neutrally in the middle. We're actually over here in the middle with Satan. But we find out in the New Testament that the battle, salvation, salvation isn't just about forgiveness of sins, as amazing as that is. Not just about being declared righteousness, amazing as that that is. There is a bigger, way bigger cosmic battle going on, and that is the adversary who seeks to dethrone Yahweh. Yahweh has sent his Messiah to put him down. And Jesus is tearing Satan's house down brick by brick. And in doing so, he plunders Satan's house. And he takes Satan's captives, makes them his own servants, redeems them from bondage, and seats them in the heavenlies where he now rules and reigns. What? 1 John 3, 8. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. Granted, in a lot of reform circles, we don't talk about the devil a lot. Some of our brothers and sisters might talk about him too much. But it is explicitly clear in the Bible that your salvation was a matter of being under the tyranny of the devil to under Christ. That's what Jesus did. He didn't just flick his wrist and give you mercy. He waged war against the enemy. And he's still waging war against the enemy. So that at one point in history, in the future, he will be no more. And he's going around like a roaring lion still, sure. But he is on a leash. I, I just have a question. Do we see ourselves as being redeemed from devilish powers? Or do I just think my sins were forgiven? That's a much less adversarial kind of way of looking at it. But we were at a point where we were called children of the devil. The, the devil, our father. There's a lot of games kids play. Your daddy beat up my daddy. Da, da, da. Someone says your dad is the devil. <laughs> All ears should perk up. I know I keep quoting this, but Ephesians, we followed the prince of the power of the air, and he was at work in the sons of disobedience. Your salvation is not just God loves me and he used to not like me, but you were a raging, captive, enemy combatant. And Christ broke your bonds. He broke the powers over you and he brought you into his own kingdom. Herman Bovink 
he really validates the phrase, if you're not Dutch, you're not much kind of thing, but uh, he's a Dutch theologian. He says regarding Jesus's power and work over Satan, here it is important to underscore Christ's power over Satan and the realm of evil. There is true evil. There is absolutely true satanic evil. And it doesn't always look like it. you think it does. Jesus came to earth to destroy the works of the devil and battled against him all his life. Especially by the cross, he triumphed over authorities and powers, took from Satan the weapons of sin, death, and the world. He stripped him of all his powers and cast him out of the territory of his kingship. In his ascension, Jesus's, especially, he triumphed over the evil spirits, as Paul observes in Ephesians 4, when he ascended on high, he led captives in his train. In other words, he overcame all the hostile powers who resisted and opposed him, and as it were, captured them as prisoners of war. Salvation is war. It is life or death war. What does judgment teach us? It teaches us that God is tearing down Satan's home. All who refuse the mercy and stay in that home, the house will fall on him. But those who come out and plead for mercy will undoubtedly be received. But Jesus has taken prisoners of war. <laughs> He's keeping receipts. He is marking all who are against him. And he is, he is willing to receive anybody who would come to him. He even changes hearts so that those would come to him. But this is salvation in a cosmic scheme. War. The most satanic thought that would ever enter our minds is this. Jesus is not the Messiah and I don't need him to die for my sins. That's the kind of war that we're in, that we find ourselves in. It's not necessarily with Ouija boards and various things, as silly and creepy as those things are. It's about faith. Does one believe that Jesus is the Messiah and that they need restoration? And, and uh, Jesus is coming to undo all the fall as far as the curse is found. He's coming to do all, undo that. What are the works of the devil? He brought in death and sin. And Jesus is coming to undo all that. And he's doing it. And he has done it. And he will keep doing it. Lastly, we see here in the flies, third point, flying from judgment. I know it's a terrible pun, but nevertheless, <laughs> whatever. Flying from judgment. <laughs> the plague of the flies. Uh, this is another gnarly 
gnarly judgment. Uh, these are probably dog flies or horse flies. Not your little bitty, you know, shoe go away fly that's, you know, landing on your peach cobbler. These are nasty buggers. And they are biting flies. And they bring ruin to the Egyptians by disfiguring them, by biting them and causing swelling. The, the flies would lay their eggs in vegetation and thus destroy the crops and the plants. And as Psalm 60, 78, 45 says, the, the Lord brought a swarm of flies and they destroyed them. We might think like the locusts or the boils or the hail destroyed Egypt. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The flies also decimated Egypt, decimated them. Oh, I, I hate flies. <laughs> who, do, who loves flies? I mean, does anybody love flies? No. And these nasty, biting horse flies were everywhere. They were everywhere. Swarms of flies on, in verse 21, on you, your servants, your people, in your houses. The houses of the Egyptians swarmed with flies and also the ground on which they stand. You can help stepping on them. They're everywhere, everywhere. Oh, that is so disgusting. But more than just disgust, these were, these were judgment. And as verse 22 says, Yahweh did this that they may know Yahweh is in the midst of the earth. Not, not the sun god, not Sobek, the crocodile god, not serpent gods, not frog goddesses. Yahweh, Yahweh is the one who's calling the shots. But there's one place they will not be. They won't be in Goshen where Israel was. They won't be in Goshen, which is a miracle. What was in Goshen? Egypt was, uh, Israel was in Goshen. But Israel had pasture land in Goshen for their herds and flocks and everything. What's normal for flies to do? Go into homes, kind of? Or go, if there are horse flies and dog flies, go where the flocks are, the grass is, the pasture land is. <laughs> Normally, that's where they would go. But God says, I will set apart Goshen where my people dwell. And we see, we're going to start seeing this as well as we go on in the next chapters, that there is a division between what Israel bears as judgment and what, excuse me, what Egypt bears as judgment and what Israel is spared from. And it says here in verse 23, I will put a division between my people and your people. Normally, frogs might just jump out of water and hang out on the banks. They wouldn't go into clay ovens and kneading bowls and all that stuff. Gnats, flies would not normally go into homes. They'd go into the pasture land. But here, by God's merciful hand, they don't go there. They don't go there. They go into the homes and they're biting Doing what flies do. <laughs> so what do we see from this division? What do we learn from this division? One, God is over all these judgments. It is not natural to flies to function in this way. 
The Old Testament scholar says, nature ordered by its creator is acting in an abnormal way that was ominously frightening for Egypt, but wonderfully reassuring for Israel. If you're, any, if you're an Egyptian and you see this going on and you hear that the land of Goshen, which is rich in pasture land and all these flocks and animals don't have a single fly there, you would think, what? What is going on here? Our world is being turned upside down. Everything we know about flyology is out the window. So there is definitely an abnormalness which shows God's hand is in this. Secondly, the division hints at what will come in the future. The next plagues of the, the, the pestilence or the livestock dying, the boils, the hail, the darkness, and the firstborn, none of that will touch the Israelites. None of that will touch the Israelites. But more importantly, this division points to the heart of salvation. That God's people don't get judged. God's people don't receive wrath. The word in verse 23, the ESV translates as division. Your marginal notes or other translations might just say God set redemption or he set deliverance. Yeah, that, the word can be translated either way. And knowing what's going on here, it'd be very fair for us to say he put redemption between my people and your people. That's what redemption is. It is a, my people are in a whole different category than my enemies. My enemies, they're not my people. Now, granted, he justifies the ungodly. He turns us from enemies to friends and brothers and sisters in the Lord. Yes, but there is a division between the enemies of God and those on whom he sets his love. He doesn't give his special redeeming love to everybody. He is a God full of love. He loves his good creation. He even loves the sinner despite his sin. And he also says in Psalm 9, he hates the sinner. Five, actually. But God's, he won't throw pearls before swine. He sets his redeeming, special, electing love on those who are his. And those who are his don't get one ounce of judgment. Not a single fly. Not a single ounce of judgment. That's what it means to be redeemed. It's to be separated out from those who will be judged. Does a husband love his wife the same as he loves other women? Definitely no. Not in our religion. <laughs> but the husband would never give the same kind of love to his wife as a friend, to a friend, or a cousin, or a stranger, or an enemy. There is a special covenantal love the husband has for his wife, God has for his church that he doesn't share with others. You, my brothers and sisters, are in a whole different category in God's heart. He loves you in a way that he will not love others. He loves you in a way that he will never remove his love from you. Nothing can separate you from his love. 
the permanent, covenantal, heavenly, glorious, merciful love. A judgmentless love. No wrath, no condemnation, pure delight for his people. Yahweh has taken away the judgments against you. He has cleared away your enemies. The king of Israel, Yahweh, is in your midst. You shall never again fear evil. On that day it shall be said to Jerusalem, Fear not, O Zion. Let not your hands grow weak. Yahweh your God is in your midst. A mighty one who will save. He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you by his love. He will exult over you with loud singing. Zephaniah 3. That's the kind of category you, Christian, are in with God's heart. It's wonderful. Wonderful. And as we see here, that is only by mercy. We know we have not earned a spot, warmed up God's heart to love us so much that we're just so lovable and cuddly. No, by grace and by grace alone, through faith in Christ, does the one transferred from the fly, gnat, frog, Satan home to Jesus' glorious kingdom. So what do, we, what do we learn? What do we learn about judgments? What does it teach us? He will not all judge the same. Those who run to Christ's refuge will not see judgment. That Christ's life and ministry is about plundering and destroying Satan's house. Amen. And that all who fly to Christ as God's appointed mediator will receive instant mercy. Will undoubtedly be received. Let's pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, your ways are above our ways. And yet what you have revealed is for us and for our sons to pass along to. You've revealed great mysteries, great moments of judgment and mercy. And I pray you would plant in our hearts the security and assurance that comes from gazing at you and not being afraid to look at you even through passages of judgment. Your judgment is real, but it also shows us your kindness and your saving power. Thank you for glorifying your son through judgment and through salvation. We pray this in his name. Amen. You can stand for our next song.